0: Well, good morning on this cold, cold, cold day. Um, First service, I thought it was going to be my wife and maybe three other people, and yet we had the house filled. And uh, I want to say thank you for coming out in two-degree weather and for those joining us at home while it's two-degree weather outside. And uh, you remind me of when I lived in Minnesota, a... Tough group of people, and uh, going to the University of Minnesota in those days, and going from the car or from class to class when it was two degrees. Yeah, I'm glad to be here inside and uh, with you online. Good morning. Uh, we're going to open God's Word, and we're going to dive into a new series on the Super Bowl Sunday. By the way, do you not wish the Super Bowl was being played like up in Green Bay or Chicago or something today in an outdoor stadium? That would have been good. But we're, gonna, we're starting a new series on Super Bowl Sunday, and uh, we are jumping into 1 Samuel 15. And if you would, please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15. Uh, we're going to be working our way through that chapter, spending a good part just in the first initial verses uh, for a few reasons. Um, we'll explain here in just a second. Raised through adversity three things are going to be taking place in this series that we're finishing through or going through uh, the latter half of 1 Samuel, and uh, three things that are taking place with that. The first is we're going to be pulling periodically some key background information. I mean, here we are, people living in 2021 AD, and we're essentially going to be gathering information, talking about events that happened nearly 3,000 years ago. And uh, so we need to go back and get some understanding here and there. And so throughout this series, we're gonna be doing that. We're gonna do some of that today. Another thing that we're going to be doing is we're going to take some strategic deep dives in certain times. We're going to take one of those today. As we come across and we work our way through the text, there are just some things that we kind of, uh, it would be good to take a deep dive in. And today we start out this series with one of the most uncomfortable situations that occurs in the Bible, and uh, I get to start out with it. We're going to deep dive into it just for a little bit. And third, we're going to grab some truths to live by, because this is Isn't just about what happened some 3,000 years ago and left at that, and we're learning information to fill in for some test. Uh, This is about information that is to, from God's word, that is to change how we do and live life and see our God. And so it's going to do that. All three of those are going to be happening. All three of those I'm bringing in today. So kind of today is a unique day in what I'm doing. I'm trying to bring all three in. We get a taste for it, kind of prime the pump for this series. It won't be exactly this every Sunday, but we're we're going to head in this. Uh, these are some of the things we're going to be working through. So I'm just going to go right in from here, and let's get some key background information. And let's do that by actually reading the first two verses of chapter 15 because there's something we need to come to understand and if we're going to understand the setting of what's happening. So let's dive in uh, verses 1 and 2. I'll read, you follow along. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me... To anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts: I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, you all of a sudden jump into a thing like this, and you're like, whoa, 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 Doug. Like, where are we? What in the world is going on? So, let me set some background. Chapters one through eight of the book of First Samuel. The central character is Samuel. Samuel is the child of Hannah. In 1 Samuel chapter 1 there's this beautiful account of Hannah a woman who's wanted to have a child and hasn't been able to. And she comes before the Lord at the temple. And God in his grace allows her and tells her and they make this deal that she's going to have this child. And that child is Samuel. You move along a little bit uh, and all of a sudden God uh, wakes Samuel up in the night as a boy. And, and essentially Samuel becomes uh, the voice for the Lord to God's People. Samuel's the main character in the first eight chapters. And then in chapters 9 through 14, this guy Saul kind of comes on the table. Uh, Saul uh, becomes king of Israel. What happened was is the Israelites, they wanted to be able to have a king like all the other nations wanted to have. You know, because if you have what everybody else has, their security will be there, comfort will be there. And yet they demanded a king like all the other nations and God actually gave them what they wanted. They gave them. Saul, a good-looking, tall uh, dude, and and he got it. Sometimes, you know what, Uh, God knows better what we need than we think what we need. But God uh, allowed them to have Saul as king, and so over chapter 9 through 14, it's really Samuel and Saul and the Israelites are interacting, and we did a study on that uh, a few years ago, and we're picking up in chapter 15 here, where all of a sudden, next Sunday, David is going to become a key character in this. Uh, Saul's still gonna be around, uh, Samuel's gonna be around, and the people of Israel are gonna be around, but we're coming up into this, and so we're at the conclusion, in fact, in your Bible, my Bible says the Lord rejects Saul. We're at the end of, towards the end of the formalized reign of Saul, and we'll be working that through the rest of the book here, and so we come up, and Samuel comes to Saul, and he says, hey, Saul, remember what happened back with uh, Amalek? And all of us today go, no. So here's what we're gonna do, go to Exodus 17. Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, what's taking place is uh, God had, Exodus one, had risen a nation in uh, Egypt with Pharaoh. The Hebrews then uh, were brought out. Moses came on the scene. The plagues came onto the scene. These things came, and God miraculously brought them out of slavery, crossed the Red Sea. After crossing the Red Sea, you get over into chapter uh, 16, and and you find that uh, there's bread from heaven, the manna, and then chapter 17 here, there's water from the rock. But know this, the reason I say all this, they're not at Mount Sinai yet, okay? They've been brought out, Some two million people and they're running or working their way through the desert to Mount Sinai but they're not there yet and here's what happens as they're making their way to Mount Sinai verse 8 chapter 17 then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim so Moses said to Joshua choose first men go out and fight with Amalek Uh, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Maybe you've heard of this account. So Joshua did as Moses told him, fought with Amalek, and while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. And whenever Moses' arms held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he got tired and his hands lowered, then Amalek uh, prevailed. Verse 12, but Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone, they put it under him, he sat down, Aaron held up an arm, Hur held up an arm. And uh, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Here's what I want for us to hear. That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Why would God say that? Why would God do that? They've been brought up out of Egypt. They're on our way to Mount Sinai. And all of a sudden, this attack comes. I'm just going to read for you. You listen. Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19 says this. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and he cut off your tail. In other words, those that were lagging behind you, and he attacked them. He did not fear Yahweh. And what was happening in this is the Israelites are coming out of uh, Egypt. They're crossing to Mount Sinai. They're not interested in a fight. They're not going into a battle. They're not trying to cause harm to these people. And, and yet Amalek and the Amalekites, they, they take them on. They come around. They get the weak. They attack them. And, and in this, remember this. God said to Abraham in Genesis twelve three, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And he says in Genesis 27, Isaac to Jacob, let the people serve you and the nations bow down to you. And God has his protective hand on his people. And in this, this one incident in God's eyes was the kind of incident where he's like, note this down, I'm going to wipe them out one day. There's a heavy load to take with that. What a great way to start a series, by the way. Um, Just wait, it's gonna get actually um, harder in just a second. But God makes that declaration in this and God's going to do a work and judges it, actually says that chapter three, God uses the Amalekites to correct, to discipline Israel over uh, their own disobedience. There's this thing that is going on here that we come over to back to 1 Samuel 15 and we're in 1 Samuel 15, we've got these hundreds of years of history behind it, and Samuel tells Saul, Saul, now's the time that the Lord wants for you to have the Amalekites taken out, as was said hundreds of years ago, that God would do. And look at verse three, and get ready, because this is hard. Now go, strike Amalek, and devote to destruction, All that they have, do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And you folks say that God is loving. There are times in Scripture where we come across some heavy things or things that we try and work through. I want to deep dive on this for a little bit. We've got some background. I want to take a deep dive here for a little bit. It's been hundreds of years since Exodus 17. None of these people were around then. And God gives this directive that his people, the Israelites, are to go and they are to take them all out including all of the useful animals. That's why those animals are listed there. And we ask, why'd you wait so long? And we ask, and I I ask, why such a harsh directive? Friends, I think we can all agree, that is a brutal directive from God. Can we agree on that? And this is one of those texts where, great, I get to start a series with one of those things that you're like, oh, crud. How do we handle this? So some thoughts, because we'll be taking some deep dives on some other items as the series goes on. Four thoughts when processing something like this: Number one, we tend to want to uh, we tend to want every uncomfort comforted. We tend to want every uncomfort comforted. Straight up, I'm not able to fully comfort you on this one. Um, Nor do I think we should be fully comforted. Why would you say that? Well, hang with me here for a little while through some of these. I actually really like deep dive conversations in things like this that we scratch our head, I really enjoy them. But but I will say them, I I rarely have them and I rarely go into them because it just seems like people, we we just have this thing in us that we think we need to make it all right. That we need to make the uncomfortable comfortable. And even sometimes it's kind of like, you know, some of these things have been discussed and debated for hundreds, even thousands of years and, and yet it's like, I'm the human being that has it all figured out. There's sometimes an arrogance that can go into these conversations, is my point. To think that we have to resolve every uncomfort that we have with God. I suggest the discussions are wonderful. But let's try and not uncomfort God. In fact, there should always be a sense of, oh my... You mean like you can't explain everything about God? Here's my theological answer. Well, duh, no. Who can? And so sometimes we come across things that we just can't fully explain and we want to get out of the uncomfort. Uh, Secondly, we tend to see God far too like us in these conversations. You know, the terms that are used a little bit later, the things that are going on, we, we see God as bigger than us, but kind of toe-to-toe in a certain way. This directive is a big problem in our eyes. But last year as a church, we studied essentially the, the intrinsic nature of who our God is, and I will say this, it may be troubling in our eyes, but it is not in our God's eyes. It doesn't seem to make sense to us. But just because it doesn't seem to make sense to us or seem fair to us, it doesn't mean that it is not, it does not make sense to our God and is not fully fair. Friends, God can and does perform perfect mercy and perfect justice at the same time. In fact, I can prove it, the cross. The cross is the perfect merging of God's justice and God's mercy at the same time—not one, then the other, then the other, then the one. No, the, no, no, no. God, both. By the way, Revelation 20 in the Great White Throne is perfect justice and perfect mercy taking place at that exact time when all stand before the Lord. There will not be one person who will ever be able to say toe to toe with God that was not fair. It won't happen. It won't happen because God is God and we are not. Uh, let's, let, let's just take it. Let's just picture ourselves. You, you pull together all your, your list of troubling things about God or, or theology or, or the Bible. Like, here's one Did Adam and Eve have a belly button? Bothers me. Uh, just having fun with it. Uh, we take this, we take those things and we, we picture ourselves. We're going to take our, uh, we're all attorneyed up. And we're gonna take our argument before the Lord. And we, we step into the throne room and the door opens into the throne room. And we're like loaded, ready to go with all our questions, guys, because I've got this one. Like, I got you caught now. And I'm telling you, the door opens and what's gonna happen? Isaiah chapter six. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I won't even have time to get the questions out. It'll be Revelation chapter 1 when John sees the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ and he falls to the floor as though he thinks he's going to die. You see, what's going to take place is all our conundrums that we have in our arguments with God. When we are in the very presence of God, in a nanosecond, those will all be gone because now we see who God is and who we are. No, that doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile to consider and to debate and to even potentially argue. I mean, read the Psalms with what the Lord is doing. But keep in mind, we tend to want to uncomfort every comfort. We tend to want to see God far too small. And a third one here, we tend to see sin far too small. We tend to see our own sin far too small. We see sin as oopsies is kind of mistakes, is, you know, well, that's my bad, but everybody does my bad. I'll say it this way. We sanitize sin. We sanitize it. We redefine it. We rename it. We excuse it. And instead of seeing our own total depravity, we want to explain that we're really not that depraved. It's really not our fault. It's Adam and Eve, lunkheads. It's Satan. No, no, here's the fact of the matter. We don't even need Satan around us. We have enough within ourselves to be able to go totally off. And it is only by God's grace that we are held in his hand. In fact, God's word says, every intention of the thoughts of the hearts of mankind is evil continually. You know what, we read that and before we even get to the end, we already want to debate it. Like, really? Like, I thought a good thought yesterday. No, I really did. It's interesting. Uh, scripture says, uh, no one is righteous, no, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. And we go, really, no one? Really? Another one is uh, Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your sins upon sins, following the prince of the power of the air, and by nature, children of wrath. Well, really? Yeah, Really? We want to sanitize our own sin and not make it as significant as it is, and so when we come across something like this, understandably so, it causes us to go, "That doesn't seem fair." But you see, we want to we want to comfort every uncomfort, and we tend to see God more too much like ourselves, and we tend to see sin far too small. By the way, there will not be any Amalekite that will ever stand before God and go, "You weren't fair." That won't happen. Can you explain why, Doug? No. But I just know this, I know who mankind is and I know who God is and I know what God says and who he is and I lay it there. And I know this, because of who God is, it's gonna be perfectly righteous, it's gonna be perfectly fair, it's gonna be perfectly mercy and it's gonna be perfectly loving. Doug, how can you say this? Because by the way, it's been 300 years since God said wipe them out. And yet after 300 years, we read nothing in the scriptures that any Amalekite ever turned and repented and yet we want to sanitize sin. By the way, it's interesting, Samuel doesn't push back on God and go, God, are, are, are you sure about that? By the way, Moses kinda did that with the Lord. And we don't see Samuel doing that. Here in another minute, we're not gonna see Saul go, Lord, that's not quite fair. Or we're not gonna even hear the 210,000 uh, Israelite men who go into the battle go, wait, 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 someone's gotta stop this whole thing. We don't see that taking place either. Might I suggest that the Lord in all of this is going, here's what's gonna happen. I want you to go and I want you to take them out and here's the thing. I will deal with them. And I will deal with them perfectly and rightly and justly and mercy, and with mercy. I will do it perfectly. You just take them out, I'll deal with it. And by the way, that leads to the fourth thing. We tend to see here as heaven. We tend to see here as what it's all about. And friends, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, this is not our home. This is not our home. And if we understand theologically really what's going on, the fact is, is we live in an utter spiritual war zone. This is not heaven. This is not the greatest place to live in all of the universe. Like, with the Lord's better. And yet, we think it's like, no, but they got to stay here. Can I even say, sensitively, that that, like death is the worst thing to happen. Hey friend, if you are in Jesus Christ, listen, I I don't wanna go through pain, I just wanna die like in a nanosecond. But with the Lord is fantastic. With the Lord is awesome. Like fast pass me out of here, seriously. And we see here is heaven. Oh, i got to move on. Uh, We sanitize this life into a fantasy life. And as a result, we make this life a heavenly life. And it's not. We sanitize and fantasize the reality of the life that is here. Well, that's a deep dive. Now we want to pull out of the deep dive... Because it's totally exhausting me. And I want to get some truths to apply to our lives. So we're going to read the rest of the chapter. And let's follow. Follow with me. So Saul, he summoned the people. He summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, Two hundred thousand men on foot. Ten thousand men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek. And lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, By the way, in Hebrew they're pronounced all differently, but this is how we read them, so I'm just going that way. I don't want to sound uppity. He went to the Canites and all the other ites. And he said, uh, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. By the way, isn't it interesting, God remembers in the whole of it when they were showing kindness. Oh yeah, Genesis 12, to those who are kind to you, to those who bless you, I will bless them. And so here, God is not on this destruction, like kick right now, like God had a bad day in things. God is actually telling the Canaanites, no, you, you, you leave because uh, we're going to come in and we're gonna take the Amalekites out. And so the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites. Verse seven, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, how? What, 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 what? Are you already seeing a problem all of a sudden show up here? What did God say God said, go, verse three, strike them and take out everyone. And something happened here. Saul defeated the Amalekites and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. But he devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Verse nine, really important. But Saul and the people spared Agag. Who, Who spared him? Saul and the people, not just the people, I say that because let's keep listening, and the best of the sheep, oh, not just the king, but also the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs, and all that was good, isn't that interesting, and would not, be in, and would not utterly destroy them, even though God had said in verse 3 two, And all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Interesting, what's happening here? answer fantasized obedience fantasized obedience a redefined obedience a self-defined obedience a selective obedience it's a delusional obedience it's partial obedience let me say this here's what's taking place Saul and the people are in I don't even think they know it but they are self-deifying themselves why do I say that Because God said, go do this, and in it, as they are in this, they begin thinking, well, you know what, let's keep that, and let's keep that, and let's keep that. It's human uh, thinking through redefining through obedience, and what's happening is, is that they, and let's put ourselves in this, that when we do this fantasized obedience, we actually subjugate God's directives pending our approval and how often do we do that and we put ourselves over who God is and we self deify ourselves and God who is great and who we'd say is great we have now put him under our wisdom and our thinking and our processing you know because here's some good things that we should do and working it through in our own mindsets Well, God said blank about who he is, but I think God is more like, God said so-and-so about his word, but I think these other truths are equal truths to God's word. God said blank about life with him. You know what, but I think this is what life looks like with him. And we could go on and on, and in fact, I'm going to go on for a little bit to drive the point home. You know, God said such and such about creation and about eternity and about sin and not to use his name in vain and about gender and about sex and about his sovereignty and about fear and about idolatry about money, about church, about the future, about submitting to one another, about devoting all of the Amalekites to total destruction. But I think, but we think. Bill Arnold, in his commentary on this text, says this. Partial obedience is really only disobedience made to look acceptable. Partial obedience is really only disobedience made to look acceptable. Loved ones, disobedience made to look acceptable is a fantasized obedience. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Verse 11, I regret, God says, that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. If we had the time, I'd be doing a deep dive right there. So just quickly on this one. Did God repent? How could God repent? The text says that God nahamed is the word it can mean I regret. It can mean I repent. Later in verse 35, at the end of the chapter, it says that the Lord nechomed again. But then in verse 29, in this same chapter, it says that the glory of Israel, which makes reference to the Lord, the Lord does not lie or nahom. So like, are we already in a conflict? How do we handle this? And then Genesis 6.6 6, uh, talks about how with Noah, that the Lord nechamed that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So is God fickle? So is God actually not sure where everything's going? Is his foresight actually flustered? Does God's uh, moving of time and people and things, actually does it pe- depend upon some emotional yo-yo going on in the Godhead? You know, we don't have full time, but I will say this. This is not God being surprised in his sovereignty with what took place. This is God sorrowing, even in what he knew was already gonna take place. There's a big difference. God's foreknowledge, even of our own sin, does not mean that God does not sorrow in our sin. Uh, This statement by uh, Davis, uh, Dale Ralph Davis, he says this, we need to know That the God of the Bible is no cold slab of concrete impervious to our carefully defended apostasies. Only in the consistent God of verse 29 of the chapter and in the sorrowful God of verse 35 of the chapter do we find the God worthy of praise. Here is a God who is neither fickle in his ways or indifferent in his responses. And this is a wonderful truth. It's sad that it becomes sometimes a debate where it's like, so God repented, he doesn't know what he's doing. No, 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 no. This is actually a truth saying, listen, friend, that even when God's people sin, even when sin happens that God already knew is going to happen, our God is not this slab of concrete that stands back and just goes, ha, moron, idiot, loser. I knew you were gonna do that. That is not our God. Our God in it, even when he sees you and me, when he sees his people in sin, he sorrows over it, even though he knew it was gonna take place. And I thank God for a God like that. That sorrows. And is not just some slab of concrete. Not only does the Lord grieve, but someone else grieves here. Verse 11, and Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Samuel's brokenhearted over what's going on, friends. He knows that he was the one who told Saul what to do and he knows that God's people didn't do that, 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 they, that they royally messed it up and he's angry. He cries to the Lord all night, verse 12. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told Samuel to Samuel, Saul uh, Saul came to Carmel, not Indianapolis, over there. Saul came to Carmel and behold, he, he set up a monument for himself. Um, he's completely blundered this whole thing in obedience to the Lord and now we find him building a monument to himself. Might that not be, like, might you feel uncomfortable in that? Yeah, something's wrong here, my friend, Saul. Something's wrong. Let's keep reading. What verse was I at? Twelve? There we go. Thank you. And he turned, uh, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Verse 13, and Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said, and blessed be you to the Lord. Uh, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Really? Really? And Samuel, this is this is this is classic. And Samuel said, um, Saul, what is that bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Love this. Uh, Samuel knows what's taking place here, and he's like, Hey, uh, Saul, that's interesting that you say you followed the Lord because, like, I- I'm I'm hearing like this huge sound of animals. Like, 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 where did they come from? Hmm. Oh, did you not, did you not hate that when your parents got you caught? I have no idea who painted the wall. Its paint is all over you. And Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep? Verse 15, and Saul said, they, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Interesting, interesting, interesting. And then Samuel said to Saul, stop. Just stop it, my friend. That's clearly in the Hebrew. I will tell you what the Lord said to me tonight. And he said to him, well, then speak. Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, by the way, that carries the idea of going back, though one time you saw yourself very small, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, Saul, just stop talking. <laughs> Please, just stop, just stop there. But he goes on, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. No, you haven't. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, yeah, 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 that's it. The people, those nasty people, they took the spoil and the sheep and the auction and the best of the things devoted to destruction. But, but here's why they did it. They did that to sacrifice to the Lord your God. That's an interesting statement right there in Gilgal. Oh, oh, I see. So it was for spiritual purposes. Okay. And Samuel said, As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. By the way, isn't it interesting how we order sin? And what's the bad ones? And what's the okay ones? Yeah. No, no, no. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption, that's interesting, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. That's encouraging. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Spot on, dude. This is hopeful. Verse 25. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. I'm encouraged by that. Let's keep reading though. Verse 26. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Well, that seems awful harsh, Samuel. Why? As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel away from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of the Lord will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then he, Saul, said this, I have sinned. Oh, yet, 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 Honor me now before the elders of my people. What? Oh, I have sinned. But will you go back with me so that I can go before the elders of the people and before Israel and return with me that I may be before the Lord so that I can look good? That's what's going on here. Hey, friends, that is not repentance. Repentance. Now I want to commend to you 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 8 through 11 to study. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 8 through 11. It talks about worldly repentance and godly repentance. There is a difference. Both have tears. Both have I'm sorry. Both even can say I have sinned and yet there is a difference. Worldly repentance at the very core heart of it. It might have grief, it might have tears, but there's no change. There's no real change out of it. There's no real turn. In fact, it says in the text, it says it produces death. It grieves over what you lost. It grieves over getting caught. It grieves over crud. Uh, I don't like this. It grieves over losing face. It sanitizes the gravity of our sin. And that it's really not that bad. It sanitizes it. And it ends up being a fantasized repentance. It's not true repentance. That's what the world does. But godly repentance, as 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11 talks about, it owns sin. It has an earnestness and an eagerness and a longing with zeal to turn this destructive sin that I committed and turn it in to the glory of the Lord. No hiding, no covering. That's godly repentance. And that is not what we're seeing with Saul. Saul is crud, I got caught. And that is not godly repentance. Saul is rejected. Samuel and Saul separate. And the Lord, who is neither fickle in his ways nor indifferent in his responses, grieves. Verse 32, Samuel said, I didn't finish the rest of it, did I? Did I? I know this is all online, did I online? Uh, I don't think I did, did I? Verse 32, Samuel said bring here, yeah I didn't. Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death has passed. He thinks he's got by away with it. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so so shall your mother be childless among women. And this is really hard for me to read because I still don't fully understand it. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. Samuel went to Ramah. Saul went up to his house in Gibeah. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Very quickly, two closing takeaways. Takeaway number one. 1 Samuel 15 has set the table for us to see an altogether different king come on board. It's gone bad. And what the people wanted, God gave. And again, sometimes what God gives us, what we think we need is not what we need. So in this, we have a king that has gone down the tubes and he's going to go down further. Might instead of a fearing the people, king, might God bring someone on who fears God? Instead of a hiding in the baggage, chapter 10, verse 22, like Saul, might God instead bring someone who has been tending the sheep? I'm telling you, it's set up next Sunday and after. God's gonna do a work out of his grace and his kindness. Takeaway number two, the the, the table is set for an altogether different us. What I mean by that is, is this idea out of the text, we tend to sanitize. We tend to sanitize sin, we rename it, we redefine it, we categorize it, we cover it. We call it something different. It's not sin anymore. We sanitize sin, we sanitize God, we make God sensical. We make God explainable. We make God bigger than us, but yet fully uh, reporting to us. And explaining himself. And we sanitize obedience. We think that it's about offerings and sacrifices. And God says, no, how about obedience? And when we sanitize life, we end up living a fantasized life. And Saul and the people were doing just exactly that. And this is a wake-up call. David Gibson, I'll finish with this quote. It's not on the screens, but listen. He says of the book of Ecclesiastes, he says this, the book of Ecclesiastes is one of God's gifts to us to help us live in the real world It's a book of the Bible that gets under the radar of our thinking and it acts like this incendiary device to explode our make-believe games and jolt us into realizing that everything is not as clean and tidy as the less pretend world we live in suggests that it is. I just read that because of this. This chapter sets us up for us to be real through this series and we're gonna be real. We're gonna get some background, we're gonna do some deep dives, and I trust out of it that we're gonna get some truths that ends up changing our lives. So Lord, we ask for that, and we call for that, and we need you in that. Um, God might you in your mighty and wonderful grace, might you do a work in our lives through this series that only you could fathom. We are stepping into times where it was was tough and it was dirty and messy. And Lord, we live in times that are tough, that is tough and dirty and messy. And we need help. And we're gonna get it. And you have given it to us. And I pray as we mine your word in the latter half of 1 Samuel that you would speak to us and help us to live in these days that we have before us for your glory. And we look forward to what you're gonna do because you are going to do above and beyond what we can think or imagine. And we lay it at your feet.